Grab the study guide that's in your program, and if you have a Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 480. We are continuing our study of uh, Nehemiah as he's repairing and rebuilding this wall in Jerusalem. We're almost to the end. We got this week and we got next week. Uh, we're going to start out by reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 19. I don't have the verses for you on the screen, so yeah, it's especially important if you're able to turn in your Bibles to that. Uh, we'll read it, and then we'll, we'll jump into our topic this morning. This morning, Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 1. It says, When the word came to Sambalat, to Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, these three guys have been forever, the last two, three chapters, been just basically a pest to poor Nehemiah. When, when they were around, he says, and they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. So he's been working on this for six chapters, and he's finally got to the point where he's rebuilt the wall. I rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though at the time I had not yet set the doors in the gates. So he's almost done. Sambalat and Geshen, they sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers with them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project. I cannot meet with you. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and I go down to you? Verse four, four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. I cannot go. Then the fifth time Sambalat sent his aide with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written. It is reported. So they start a rumor about him. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem is also saying it, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore, that's why you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. You've even appointed prophets to make a proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report is going to get back to the real king. So come, let's meet together. Nehemiah says, I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. Verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But Nehemiah prayed, God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10, there's a little shift. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehabel, to, you know, so he's a part of the Jewish family, um, who was shut in his house, shut up in his house. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors because Nehemiah, men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should, should a man like me run away? Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him. But instead, he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had, hired to, he, had, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. You weren't allowed to go into the temple unless you were a priest. And then they would, that would give me a bad name and it would discredit me. Drop down to verse 15. So the, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So he's able to get it done in less than two months. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their confidence because they realized that this work, rebuilding the wall, had actually been done with the help of our God. We have been talking about Nehemiah as he's trying to be, rebuild this wall in Jerusalem. And we've been applying it to broken things in our lives. And what do we do? And he's almost done. 
I'm almost at the finish line. And our topic this morning is finishing well. Regardless of whether we get the wall completely built or not, how do we finish well in this race called life? To get us started, before we actually jump into the principles, uh, there's a video I want you to watch. The quality isn't great, but it's a, it's a race that occurred a while back as part of a Big Ten championship. It illustrates something that I want to zero in on with you. So let's watch it. It's short, and then we'll talk. Pretty neat, isn't it, to see that? That happened a while back. Two principles I want to draw your attention to. Number one, uh, as you run the, the race of life, at some point in time, you are going to fall. This is not me trying to be negative. This is me trying to be realistic. You're going to fall. Now, sometimes we fall because it's our own mistake. We trip over our feet. We, we do something that we shouldn't do. Sometimes it's nobody's mistake, right? You're running and you, you, fall, you, you run into a pothole and you fall, you trip. It's no one's mistake. Sometimes it's someone else's mistake. Someone else trips you on purpose or by accident. At this point in time, it doesn't matter why it happens. You just have to, you have to be ready for and you have to understand that life is never perfect. Sometimes we fall, okay? So expect that. Be ready for that. And then the second principle that we really want to zero in on this morning. Um, when you fall, here's the issue. How long is it going to take you to get back up and keep running? When this story first happened, one of the things that the ESPN people and everybody in sports was talking about was not necessarily that she won the race because she actually ended up winning it, but how quickly she got up off the ground after she fell. You see, the longer you're on the ground, the less probable it is that whatever you're trying to fix, whatever you're trying to repair, doesn't get repaired. I want to also be clear. God doesn't call you to win the race. 
He calls you to keep running the race. There's a huge difference. You need to understand that. But you have to pick yourself up as quickly as possible and get back to the business of what have we been talking about? Repairing your marriage, repairing your finances, fixing your career, repairing, repairing relationships with kids and parents and friends, uh, repairing your life physically. Whatever it is you're applying these principles to, get back up as quickly as possible and keep running. As we talk about finishing well, there's three principles I want to talk to you about. I think they're going to be helpful to you. If you're jotting down notes, here's the first one. You have to prioritize. You have to stay focused. Don't get distracted. The most successful people in life are determinedly focused, right? Almost stubbornly focused on their priorities and what they're trying to accomplish. I want you to notice there's three times at the beginning of the chapter, in verse one, Nehemiah says, you know, I, I almost rebuilt the wall. Uh, it's all done, but, the, but the, the doors haven't been put in place yet. So now he, he's done 95% of it. The armies aren't going to be able to just come charging into Jerusalem, but there's still no doors. So it's not, it's not completely done. He's, he's almost done. And then he receives a message from a guy called Sambalat. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple chapters, you know that, you know, what, what the Joker was to Batman, Sambalat is to Nehemiah. It's his nemesis. He is just a pain in the blessed assurance. He won't go away, right? It's like, oh my goodness, every chapter he's nagging on poor Nehemiah. And in chapter six, he sends him a couple messages and he says, let's meet in, in the plains of Ono or let's meet in Ono. Now, what, what commentators believe this verse is, is basically a political concession speech. You know, you know how kind of what happens, you know, when we're watching elections, when we just had one at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., you know, um, they, you know, all the votes haven't been counted yet. Uh, but MSNBC is declaring Nehemiah is going to win the state of Ohio and its electoral votes. Right. And hasn't been, they've counted enough. They've observed enough. And they know Nehemiah is going to win. Sambalat's going to lose. And Sambalat essentially concedes. Right. I, all you got left to do is the doors. But something else is going on here because he's been a pain this whole time, right? He, he wants to have, a, he wants to have a, a meeting with him. Now, I would like to suggest is when someone that doesn't like you, that's your enemy, wants to meet, you, wants to meet with you in a place called Oh No, that should, <laughs> that should alert you to the fact that it's probably not good. Actually, this coastal area of Oh No right? was a very nice area. It was like a vacation spot. It was close enough to Jerusalem. You get away quick. It's, it's the equivalent of Tahoe for us, right? Hey, get, you know, Sambalat, Nehemiah, let's, let's hang out. We'll couple, have a couple margaritas. We'll shake hands. We'll make peace. Let's move on, right? But he knows something, something's not right. But essentially, he basically goes, verse three, listen, I'm not done with the job. I'm not done with this great project. I'm not going to go. I cannot go. What is Nehemiah going? I, I, I realize I could go with you. It's not that big of a deal. But he says, I'm not going to be distracted from my priority. My priority is the wall. The wall isn't done. The project isn't done. Now, some of us, we do a really good job at staying focused and prioritizing and avoiding the big distractions because they're obvious. They're huge distractions. But how about the small distractions? I mean, Going to Tahoe for the weekend, just a couple days. I mean, I'll get back in town on Monday. We'll put the doors back in on Tuesday. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You could even justify it. It might be good for Jerusalem if Sambalat and Nehemiah get together and they make peace. Just a small distraction. 
I read this story. It was not like one of those Reader's Digest stories about a soldier on a camp. And he wanted to, 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 to set the record for consecutive push-ups. And, and on that camp, in that base, the, the record was 424 consecutive push-ups. And so he went into training. He wanted to beat 424 consecutive push-ups. So the day came when he was going to do his push-up challenge. He had his trainer behind him with the clicker counting. And, and he, started, he started doing his push-ups. And he got up to 100 really quickly. And then he got into a steady pace. And off he went. He was just going and going. And then he got to 390. And at 390, he stopped at the top of his push-up. And he started, started to shake his head, right? It's kind of hard to shake your head when you shake his head and then he continued with the push-ups. His trainer was behind him, so he didn't know what was happening. And then at 410, just, just almost at the record, he started shaking his head again. Then he started coughing, tried to spit a little bit, then fell to the ground, and the contest was over. And his trainer came over, and after he was done kind of coughing and kind of spitting or whatever he was doing, his trainer said, what happened? He goes, didn't you see what happened? He said, when I got to 390 and I stopped, uh, I started to shake my head because there was a wasp flying around, right? And I was trying to get the wasp away from me. And then I kept going, and then the wasp was there, and I shook, shook some more trying to get away. But instead of getting the wasp away by accident, I sucked the wasp in, and I swallowed the wasp. And that was the end of me. Okay, here it goes. You ready? Figuratively speaking, what's your wasp? Be honest. What, what small little thing is going to get you off track from accomplishing your goal, your purpose of rebuilding and repairing whatever it is that you're working on. Because like I said, we're good at avoiding the big things. But how about the small things that potentially can derail your project? When I was a young pastor, someone, you know, they they gave me this this suggestion. They said, David, everybody's going to be pulling at you from different directions and and you're, you're going to have to learn how to prioritize. And that sounds real good, right? Yeah, we all want to prioritize. But what are the alternatives to focusing on your priorities? And they gave me, it was really kind of a business understanding of how you organize yourself. And it was helpful for me to process, do I do this or not? I have it for you on the screen. So here's the organizational style. Some of us focus on what's unpleasant. What's hard gets done first. Some of us do that with chores around our house. Have you noticed that? On Saturday, you work on what you, what's the hardest first. Let's get that out of the way. And then, and then, cause that takes the most energy. And then I'll focus on everything else. We focus on what's hard first. Some of us focus on what's urgent. The loudest thing first. It's kind of the person who's whining the loudest. You know, the whole squeaky wheel, you know, gets our attention. Some of us focus on what's unfinished. Do you ever do this? You got your to-do list. You're checking off your to-do list. You're getting some of it done. And then at the end of the week, what isn't done goes on the top of next week's to-do list. Well, maybe it should always be at the bottom of your to-do list. Have you thought about that? Just because it's unfinished doesn't mean that it goes to the top of your list. Some of us focused on what's unfulfilling. And we do the dull things first. Have you noticed some people eat this way? They 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 eat what they don't like first, right? And we get rid of the broccoli and then I can focus on the steak. And some of us do it in life. The opposite is focusing on the uplifting. If you have teenagers, you know, they, we've all done it at some point in time. They come home from school, you know, and they've got homework. I got a test tomorrow. I got to study. It's very clear that that's the priority. But you know what? I want to play Fortnite for a little bit. You know, I, I want to go on Instagram for a little bit. 
I want to have a snack. For a li- Is there anything wrong with any of this? No, not necessarily, except that it's not the priority. It's not just teenagers that do that. And, 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 and as you organize your life, I was told, and it's been helpful to me, focus on what's ultimate. The priorities should come first. Priorities. Now, I realize on paper, this seems so simple, Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, the urgent, you gotta, you gotta work on that. And sometimes what you didn't get done last week, you do got to get done this week. But ultimately in the big picture, as you're trying to repair, rebuild and go through life, you still need to prioritize and you need to give attention, energy and time to your priorities, right? And you have to understand that there's some flexibility here. You know, we had Donovan here. I remember when I was a young pastor and I hear it when I interview people all the time and they go, well, what, what is your, my priority? Number one is God. My priority number two is my family. My priority number three is then my church or my job. And that sounds good, right? Except it doesn't work that way in real life. It just doesn't. Sometimes you have to be flexible, right? Let's say that, I don't know, I'm taking my daughter out to a movie, right? We've planned it for a week or two, right? And about an hour before we're about ready to go and see, see some movie she wants to see, I get a call from someone in the church or from one of our staff members telling me and alerting me that there's an emergency. There was an accident. Someone's in the hospital. It doesn't look good. Now, do you think it would be appropriate for me to go, well, you know, we're going to see the new Avengers movie. (laughs) No, sometimes you adjust your priorities and you say, no, I'm sorry, Julia, I'm going to have to take you another time. And then sometimes someone might call me and I might listen to the message and go, no, that's not as much of an emergency as they think it is. And I'm going to take my daughter. Does that make sense? So have some flexibility as you go through life, but also clearly determine what is your priorities. Now, I would hope the fact that you're here tells me you know what Scripture says. And Jesus at one point said, time says about our priorities, seek ye first, priority, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So what God and what Jesus and Christ is doing in and in, inside of you should be your priority in life. And then, you know, career and health and family and wife and kids. I realize it all gets, you know, but focus on your priorities. The most successful people in life focus on priorities. Principle number two, as you finish, you have to understand that you're at war. You need to change your perspective. Now, what I'm asking you to do here is I want you to basically flip a switch in your brain. I need you to understand that from a spiritual perspective, there's a battle going on in our life. And I, I just, you know, we, we hear what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, but we don't live it. Paul says in Ephesians, you, your battle is not against flesh and blood. But there's a spiritual warfare, principalities and powers around us. It's real. You know, in this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 6, it's interesting how he starts the chapter and how he ends the chapter. First part of the chapter, he identifies the individuals that are trying to distract him, that are starting a rumor about him as enemies. Enemies. And then he ends the chapter like two bookmarks. He ends the chapter by concluding, you know, when they heard, when my enemies heard that the task was done, you know, they knew God was behind it. He doesn't call them opponents. He doesn't call them adversaries. He doesn't call them competitors. He calls them enemies. He uses warfare, military terminology, enemies. 
And we have to flip a switch and understand that when we walk out those doors, there is a real, literal enemy in the spiritual realm that is trying to destroy you. Trying to keep you from repairing and rebuilding your life. You have to flip that switch and you got to know that. Now, in our... In our, one of our discipleship classes, the, the, the Las Vegas class, we're talking about sin, and we spent a lot of time on this. I'm going to cover it with you real quickly. I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself, which one of these, spiritually speaking, best represents who you are? Let's put these next pictures up there. There's three pictures. Left side of the screen. Is that you? You got your party hat on. You got your sunglasses on. You got your feet in the pool. You know, you call the, you call the waitress that's walking around. Hey, one more Mai Tai. Life's good. You're checking your fantasy football scores. You're buying something on eBay or Amazon. Life is good. Is that your approach to life? Or or maybe some of us were in the middle. We approach what the enemy, you know, kind of like a pickup basketball game. He's our adversary, but it's a game. I mean, sometimes God's team wins. I'm on his team and sometimes the other guy's team wins. But, you know, there's not that much at stake. It's a game. I mean, sometimes we both, you know, or are you on the right side of the screen? From a spiritual standpoint, where are you? Does that make sense to you? Because uh, what I observe is there are far too many of us getting picked off by the enemy because we're away on the left side of the screen. If you're the enemy and you have three different types of Christians, left side of the screen, middle of the screen, right side of the screen, and you're the enemy, which one do you go after? Does that make sense? The, the guy who's got his feet in the pool that doesn't think anything's going on. Now, I do not want you to be nervous. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be stressed. Scripture doesn't want that at all. You know what it wants you to be? You see it on the screen. It's on the verse right underneath. How about be alert? Understand that when you walk out these doors, it's the equivalent of being in a battle zone. You're in Kabul or wherever war's going on now. And you're alert, you're a spiritual soldier, and you're alert, you're aware that the enemy's after you. Be alert. Why? Because the enemy, as described in First Peter 5, is like a lion. And he's waiting. And you might not see him, but he's waiting to pounce. Are you alert, right side of the screen? Or are you lalagagging through life spiritually like nothing's going on? So visually, you have to understand this. Now, a couple other things about the enemy. There's so much in there. It's so interesting. Let me put this next slide up there. In verse 4, right in the middle, it says this. Four times, Nehemiah says, four times they sent me an email about meeting with them. Four times. And when you read the text, it says the same message over and over and over and over again. They sent him a message four times. And every time, Nehemiah said, Sorry, I got a wall to build. That's more important than going and hanging out with you in Tahoe for drinks. So I'm going to stick to the wall four times. And then right after the fourth time, you see what it says. Then the fifth time they sent the same message. And here's the point. If you haven't figured it out by now, your enemy never gives up. Ever, ever, ever. He never gives up. He might change his approach, but he doesn't give up. 
I don't have a slide. I don't have it in your notes, but it was interesting when I quickly went through Nehemiah, what the enemies of Nehemiah had tried to do to him. The same things our enemy does to you. Watch. Nehemiah, the en- Nehemiah's enemy tried to deter him. What was it chapter three, chapter two, when they start building the first thing they said to him, you, you bunch of losers. You guys are white collar workers, perfume makers trying to do uh, build a wall. You have no construction skills whatsoever. Tried to deter him. Second thing he tried to do is discourage him. And, and, and he, they literally said this to him. You know what? We're watching. You guys have started to build a wall. And I, I mean, our observation is at night when you guys are all not working, a fox is going to walk up on just a little fox. And because it's so poorly built, the fox is going to knock your wall down. I mean, because look at it, it sucks. <laughs> try to discourage him. Your enemy will try to destroy you. So that didn't work. Verbal warfare. So literally, now an army starts coming down with real spears and real swords. In, in last week's chapter, the enemy will try to divide you. See, if he can't have the opposition from outside the family, from outside the church, from outside the business to get you to stop... What he tries to do is to find someone inside the family, inside the church, inside the business. Because if he can get us fighting against ourselves, we forget the purpose and are not as uh, uh, effective in terms of the, the purpose that God has called us to do and accomplish as a church. Oh my goodness, is it powerful when you can get Christians fighting against other Christians. And then this chapter, the enemy tries to distract Nehemiah. Hey, over here. Yeah, the wall will get done. Let's just hang out. Let's go have some appetizers. We'll talk. We'll chit chat. It was a good campaign. Tries to distract them. And then I don't have time to get into it, but it was very interesting. They start a rumor about Nehemiah. So they try to discredit him. They send an aide. So it's indirect. It's not direct. They, by the way, they literally, what we would say is they post it on, on social media. How, How do we know that? Because it's an unsealed letter. It's not a formal letter with a, with a stamp on it. It's a private communication between Sambalat and Nehemiah. No, it's unsealed, which means anybody can hear about it. Anybody can read about it. It's also unsubstantiated. It is reported. You know, people are saying, well, what people? You know, people. Unsubstantiated. No, who said this? And it's inaccurate. What? I want to I be king of Jerusalem. Who said that? Well, that's what we're hearing. And the goal is to just get them to stop. And the point is this. Nehemiah's enemies didn't stop. And your enemy won't either. So I'm, I'm just asking you, you need to flip a switch. You, you need to, instead of walking through life with spiritual shorts and a tank top, you got you to gotta get geared up. You got to get geared up with spiritual armor. A couple suggestions in terms of how to stay strong, spiritually speaking. Let me give them to you, two of them. First of all, you got to listen and stay close to your commander in chief. Now, after I did this, the study guide notes, you know, that sounds a little bit vague. What does that mean? You know, commander in chief. Well, your commander in chief is Jesus, just to be clear. That's our commander in chief. He's at the top of the org chart. Okay. He's our commander in chief. And the way we do it, I added the word, the equal sign, the bold. How we do it as Christians is this word called devotions. Now, that's a a word we use around church to mean and refer to a time when you spend one-on-one time with God. Right? 
It's not group time with God. It's one-on-one time with God where you, you get into, you, you read a couple, uh, a little bit of scripture and you spend a little bit of time talking to him. It can be as short as four minutes or it can be as long as 30, 40 minutes, right? Both of them are helpful. Both of them you need to do. But you need to be in constant communication and listening to your commander-in-chief, to Christ. Now, uh, one of the things that draws my attention, if you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 9. Um, when Nehemiah has a problem, uh, as he's going about rebuilding and repairing, when he has a problem, his instinct is always to do the same thing. You know what it is? Pray. Every single time he runs into a roadblock, there's an issue, there's a problem, his instinct always is to pray. So in chapter 2, chapter 1, he prays for help. Chapter 2, he prays for wisdom. Chapter 4, he prays for protection. Chapter 9, we haven't even got to it yet. Chapter 9, he prays for forgiveness. In this chapter, verse 9, you want to know what he prays? In verse 6, he prays, uh, verse 9, chapter 6, you know what he prays for? Strength. God, these people, they're just wearing me down. I mean, Sambalat is a pest. Strengthen me, God. Help me stay to the task that you've given me. Is your first instinct to pray? Maybe we need to work in that direction. The second thing is I want to encourage you in to live in community or fellowship or Christian friendship, close to other fellow soldiers. Now, we are referred to as a, as, a, as a family in Scripture. You know what we're also referred to? As an army. Now, I, I, I've not been in the military, you know. Props to our veterans today. We're celebrating them around our country and what you've done for our country, that we can have freedom here. Uh, so I've never been in military, right? But if you've, you've been in the military, you know. And even if we haven't, we've watched enough more movies, right? A soldier isn't walking around the battlefield by themselves. I mean, I guess there's unique situations. I don't know, a sniper or, you know, a spy or something. But good soldiers are with a platoon. They're with an army. That's what makes them effective, right? And it's the same thing when it comes to sp- our spiritual lives. You, you are not as strong individually as you are collectively with the other people sitting around you. And the main way we do that is through small groups where you're interacting with other people. And, you know, Sunday morning is great, but there's very superficial conversations going on on Sunday. You're never sitting next to the same people. It's not a place that is easily you can build relationship. You have to do that in small groups, right? You lean on them. You depend on them. You encourage them. They encourage you. You get advice from them. They get advice from you. You study scripture together. And then when something happens and your life falls apart, the group is there to pick them up. By the way, groups are doing a better job of that than the pastor. You know why? Because way have we gone past the time where I know intimately what's going on in everyone's life. And if you want me to do that, there's no way I can prepare a sermon on Sunday morning. Do you see where we're going with this? It's happening in groups. One of the things, we're, we, let me use a, a, a contemporary local illustration. So we, we love our Golden State Warriors, and they've been doing pretty good. Well, a couple of years ago, they came up with a slogan. Let's put it up on the screen. Uh, it was a while back. You've heard that, strength in numbers, right? And it happened a while back. We've, the, the Warriors have kept it because they've been pretty successful, and we've been winning championships, right? Why do teams do this? Every team, NBA team, has some sort of slogan like this. Do you know why they do it? There's two reasons. Number one is marketing. They want to sell more t-shirts, right? And us warrior fans were like, I don't have a t-shirt that says strength in numbers. I'm going to have to buy me a t-shirt, right? So one is marketing, straight up. 
But the other is when teams, both, both the coach and the team and the organization, collectively come together and use it as a rallying point, which is what the Warriors did, right? And it's not just the players, right? But it's, you know, when the team isn't doing good, strength in numbers. We need the fans to support us, right? They're really true. There's strength in numbers. Steph Curry didn't win the championships. No, the Warriors won the championship. Strength in numbers, right? Now, while we understand this, and while this is true of our Golden State Warriors, and while this is true of the sporting world, it is just as true when it comes to spiritual warfare. You have to understand that. And you have to push through where I don't know people and I feel awkward and what if I go to a group? You have got to get into Christian community. Why? Because when you most need it, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, it's too late if you're not in community by then. You already have to be in community by then. Now, one of the benefits of strength in numbers is that our opposition feels like this. I got this slide that I found too. Let's put it up on the screen. That's LeBron James, if you don't know, and Steph Curry and his daughter yelling at him. I thought that was pretty fun, so for all you LeBron fans. Okay, here's the last one. I thought that was cute. Number three, here's the last principle. You got to get wisdom, you got to get discernment. Get wisdom and get discernment. Finishing strong includes growing in discernment. And it's interesting, when you read this chapter, there is at least three instances where Nehemiah has this, I don't know, this sixth sense that something's going on. So in verse two, right, after they send them all these messages, Nehemiah says this, I had this thought that they were scheming against me. Now, what's interesting is when you read the story, there's absolutely no indication of where he got that information from. There was nothing in the email. He's just like, I, this doesn't feel right. Then you drop down to verse nine after the fifth message. And he says, you know, I just, I think they're just trying to get us off task. They're just trying to frighten and intimidate us. But again, you read the task, the text. It's not in there. He's like, I don't, where'd you get that, Nehemiah? And then very interestingly, verses 10 through 12, it says, Shemaiah said. Now we know that this guy's a Jewish guy. He's not part of the Arab coalition that's trying to destabilize Nehemiah. He's, an, he's a Jewish guy. He's part of the family. He's part of the team. He's one of us. Shemaiah said to Nehemiah, Hurry, let's go meet in the house of God inside the temple. I told you when we were reading it, you weren't allowed to be in the temple unless you were a priest. But Shemaiah says, let's go meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let's close the door. Nehemiah, they're trying to kill you. Pretty intense. It would almost make sense because people with swords and spears have been running around. They're trying to kill you. And Nehemiah is like, I, I started to realize and think, I don't, I don't think God's behind this. I don't think he's really... And then he really connects the dots and he goes, Sambalat, the Arab coalition, they hired him. Now, again, nowhere in here that we see that. Interestingly enough, commentators think that this Shemaiah guy in verse 10 and 12 is a priest. He's an actual, he's the pastor, right? And you would think, you know, you could trust the pastor, follow and obey the pastor every time he says anything because pastors are completely and always trustworthy. I guess, I guess not. You would think he could. So why the doubt? Because he's got this discernment thing that he's, he's, something's going on here. Something's going on. Now, discernment is not having a sixth sense. It's not 
something mystical. It's not women's intuition. It's not being super smart or having a college degree or a master's degree or a high IQ. Being intelligent and being wise are two completely different things. They sound like the same thing, but they're not. Does that make sense? Have you ever met someone that has all kinds of degrees and they're just not that smart? Drop them anywhere in one of our towns, they're going to get mugged within the hour, right? So they're smart. I have a lot of IQ, but they're not really wise. No, you don't go there at night, dude. Man, what are you doing, right? I'm talking about wisdom and discernment. And those are cousins. Those are very close to one another. What is discernment? I have it for you on your study guide, or I also have it for you on the screen. It's these things. Discernment. Where is it? Let's put it up on the screen so I can find it. Discernment is the ability to see, to hear, and to notice what others don't. To see, the, we're all in the room, we all heard the conversation, but someone with discernment will go, did, did you see what Sally said? Did you see Joe, he, the face he had when he said that? They can, they, it's like they're reading between the lines. It's the ability to connect the dots and to make judgments, to make conclusions, and to make decisions based upon just kind of discernment observation it's the ability to decide between right and wrong truth and error should we go this way should we go that way now um scripture tells us that discernment is actually a spiritual gift new testament says that all of us have at least one spiritual gift some of us have the gift of teaching some of us have the gift of leadership some of us have the gift of intercession or of compassion or of shepherding and on and on and one of them is discernment not all of us have the gift of discernment. In a room this size, maybe 5% of us have that special, unique, God-given gift. My wife, Sandy, has the gift of discernment. Here's how the gift works. You know, we're talking, and she'll say, you know what I think is going to happen with so-and-so? Do you know what I think is going to happen over here? You know what I think is happening with this couple, this family, this issue, this situation? And she'll say something, and this is what it used to be like. I'd be like, Girl, you're crazy. Where do you come up with that? There's no way that's going to happen. And then six months later, it happens. And I'm like, so now when she says it, I just flat out agree with her. Because I want to get some credit on the back end either, you know. But she just kind of connects these dots that I'm like, I, I don't see that, but whatever. Now, we may not have a spiritual gift like Sandy or a couple other people here have of discernment. That doesn't mean you can't grow in it. Does that make sense? You may not have the gift of teaching or leadership, but you can grow in it. You may not have the gift of mercy of compassion, but you can grow in it. You may not have the gift of discernment. That doesn't mean you just go like, oh, well, whatever. No, you have to grow in it. If you want to finish strong, you have to get more discernment. Here's how I want to wrap up. How do you get more discernment? Three, four things. Let's wrap it up with this. Number one is learn from life and learn from mistakes. So the indication, especially in the book of Proverbs, is the longer you've lived life, in theory, the more discernment and wisdom you should have. It's one of the values of having elderly people around you as advisors. If they've been around the block more than you have, if they've experienced life more than you have, in theory, people that are older should have more wisdom and discernment. Does that make sense? Right? Because they've just experienced more. Also, you can learn from mistakes. You should learn from mistakes. Uh, uh, learn from your own mistakes. But you, know, you want to know that what's better than learning from your own mistakes? Learning from other people's mistakes. That's a whole lot better. 
You watch them trip, crash and burn, you know, like I'm not going to do that. Right. You don't have to just learn from learn from other people and the mistakes they're making. And you don't make the same mistake. It's wrong on the screen, but it's correct in your study guide. Proverbs chapter 24, it should be 24, verse 16 says this. The righteous fall seven times. You know what that means? They they made a mistake seven times. They crashed and burned seven times. The righteous fall seven times. But then it says this. But they rise again. They get up off the track and they keep running. They learn from their mistakes. And that's part of discernment. The second thing is following God. Following God. Obeying God. Proverbs chapter 2, 5 through 9 says this. The God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, understanding to the upright, to the blameless, to the just. Here it comes. And to the faithful, to the obedient. Here's what this means. So, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should go this way or that way. I don't know if I should marry marry this person or not marry them. I don't know if I should take this job or that job. I don't know what I should do. So God hears you and he gives you a little bit of wisdom. And he gives you a little bit of discernment to make a decision that is honoring to him. Now, if you take the wisdom he gives you, you take the discernment he gives you, and you chuck it to the side and you do your own thing anyway. The next time you pray, God, help me out. I don't know what to do. He's going to be like, well, what? Why should I help them out? The last time I helped them out, they didn't listen to me anyway. Does that make sense? You want more discernment? You want more wisdom? Obey him more. It's just that simple. Follow him more, obey him more, and he helps you connect the dots better. He gives you more wisdom, more discernment. The third thing is you just flat out got to ask for it. Flat out ask for it. James chapter one says you don't have because you don't ask. Kings chapter three, the whole chapter. God, give me wisdom. Psalm 119 to 125 says this. God, I'm your servant. That's you. You're his follower. I'm your servant. Then he adds this. Give me discernment. Not intelligence. Not capacity. Not strength. Give me discernment. Help me, help me to know what to do. Help me to read through the information, read through the situation, read through the conversation to make wise decisions. And then the last one, Proverbs chapter one says, one of the ways you get discernment is wisdom is right here. You have got to have a steady diet of this book. Consistently have a diet of this book. Some people have taken that a little bit the wrong way. I got a picture for you. This guy's name is King Melek. Menelik. King Menelik was out of Ethiopia and King Menelik was incredibly helpful to his country. In Ethiopia, he established the first modern bank. He developed the postal system. The, he, he wired the nation for telephones. He paved the roads. He also was a pretty committed Christian, right? He believed in the power of this book, but he also took it a little bit extreme. He not only believed in the power of this book, but he believed in the power of each individual page. He kind of had a weird mystical sense about each page to the point that when he needed to make decisions or when he was sick, he would go to his Bible. He would rip a page of the Bible out and eat it. Literally eat it right now. um, He came up upon a situation where he was not doing well and he went to the book of first and second Kings and he literally ate the book of first and second Kings page by page by page. It sounds a little funny, but what happened next? Not so funny. He had internal complications and he died. True story. Look it up on Wikipedia. It's all there. So he kind of took it the wrong way. And some of us are here going, yeah, I'm, I'm much more sophisticated than that. I would never do that. No, 
Maybe you don't do that, but you make equally as deadly mistakes. Can I give you some suggestions and examples of what I see? Here's a deadly mistake some of us make. We assume we only need one Bible meal a week. We'll just let Pastor Dave cook it up for us. He does a pretty good job at that, and I'll come back next week. Well, as helpful as it may be, and I try to be helpful on Sunday morning, it's not enough for you. Just like one meal wouldn't be enough for your stomach, one Bible meal isn't enough for your soul. It's a mistake we make. Here's another mistake we make. We assume uh, that just because we read what this book says, just because we take notes like this morning on what this book says, that everything's good. Mistake, if you don't apply it, it doesn't do you any good. James says, in fact, it's a waste of time for you and might be more damaging to you than it is helpful to you. All I want to say is this. You've got to feed on this book if you want wisdom, okay? If you want discernment. Here's our summary slide. Let's put it up there. Which one of these do you most need to do as you're trying to attempt to finish strong? Stick to your priorities. Remember that you're in a spiritual battle and proactively go after and seek discernment. At least one of those you've got to do to finish strong, okay? We're going to wrap up. We're going to close in prayer. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually put our youth pastor to work. Get up here, Don. I see you back there. We're going to have him pray. There we go. There he comes. Okay. Now, Donovan, as you're coming up real quickly, you see the screen. He's your, here's your ori- part of your orientation. That's my screen that my slides are on there and you have the time. It's 1114 on the left. And then the time right there is how long it takes. Now, okay. if you ever see red uh-huh. here, if you ever see red, that means I'm over. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm allowed to go over cause I've been here 25 years. You've been here 25 minutes. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, so when you see red and I'm five minutes over now, right. you got to let the natives go because they want to get, get right. hurry up and get. So just know that. OK, okay? so I just want to make you aware of that. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to sit you right here okay. and go, go ahead and go ahead and tell them to stand. Everybody stand, please. <laughs> and then say just thank you to our veterans this morning. Let's give them a hand. We want to say thank you to our veterans and let's give them a hand. We have we have a movie coming up this weekend. We got a movie night coming up this weekend. All the ladies, you should come to the movie night. All the ladies, y'all should come to the movie night. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Your husbands won't be there and the kids won't be there either. Your your husbands won't be there and the kids won't be there, so it's going to be great. Okay, now now because we're over, let's make it a short prayer. Short prayer. And then at the end of the prayer, you wave and we're done. Jesus wept. Okay. Thank you. No, 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 you're going to pray for oh, real. Else we're not okay. paying you this month. Our hearts and minds on Christ. God, we want to come to you saying thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in, in Bay Hills Community Church. And God, we pray that as we go out this week that you, you be with us every step. And God, I pray that someone comes asking, what must I do to be saved? In Jesus' most precious and holy name, amen. <laughs>